And a very good morning to you. We're live in London and Zurich and you're with Monocle on Sunday with me, Emma Nelson. Coming up on today's programme, my London guest, Caroline Frost, Vincent McAvinney, will be joining me around the studio here at Midori House. And in Switzerland, Florian Egli will be going through the weekend papers and picking out the highlights. Florian, good morning to you. What's caught your eye? Good morning. We'll go on a tour d'horizon across Swiss German and US newspapers and we'll talk a bit defense. So we'll talk about um, why the French don't want to talk to the Swiss anymore, a diplomatic fallout. Also why the Swiss um, army is actually having 250 social media channels. And we'll talk about the upcoming vote in Switzerland about taxing the rich and an interview with the richest Swiss Wonderful. Thank you, Florian. We'll be bouncing over to Bangkok, too, to hear from our woman in the capital. Sawadee Ka, this is Gwen Robinson in Bangkok, and I'll be joining you with some updates from the Land of Smiles and further afield about Myanmar very shortly. Plus, we'll find out what's making news on the front pages of the Süddeutsche Zeitung, too. It's the 19th of September, 2021, live from London and Zurich. This is Monocle on Sunday. And a very good morning to you. Before we begin, a quick look at today's news headlines. France's foreign minister has accused Australia and the US of lying over a new security pact that prompted Paris to recall its ambassadors. Jean-Yves Le Drian also accused the countries of duplicity, a major breach of trust and contempt. There's been widespread condemnation of the exclusion of girls from secondary schools in Afghanistan. Only boys and male teachers have been allowed back into the classroom. And US officials have moved thousands of migrants away from a Texas border town that has seen an influx of mostly Haitian migrants over the last week. The migrants will be flown back to where they began their journey. That's a look at the uh, the papers. In a moment, we'll be introducing today's panellists. But first, let us dial up to Lisbon, where we can hear from our editorial director. A very good morning to you, Tyler. Bom dia. Good morning, Emma. Bom dia, bom dia. How is life with you? Life is very, very good. It's, uh, I'm, you've caught me in the, the middle of uh, Alentejo this morning uh, at San Lorenzo Baracal, a very, very nice estate. I can highly recommend it for the, uh, the Nelson Caravan uh, whenever you want to make your way southwards. Could you reserve me a spot? What is it that's so lovely about where you are? Well, I mean, a part of it is just uh, a landscape which feels very much uh, almost like you're a little bit at, at turns. You feel like you're in Namibia. You feel like you could be in South Africa here. And it's just vineyards and olive groves and cork trees as far as the eye can see. And if I sort of spin around behind me, of course, uh, all of those vineyards, uh, of course, uh, produce, I think, some very, very fine liquids that uh, have wound up in uh, tens of thousands of bottles in a in a wonderful uh, yeah, a really a wonderful estate uh, just behind me. I'm spotting a pattern because a few weeks ago when you, you called us from the, the roadside on your way back to Switzerland, you had 44 bottles of wine in the back of your G-Wagen. What's, what, what's coming back in the brulee suitcase? Well, it, 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 we're going to travel a little bit lighter, but 12 <laughs> bottles will, will, will make their way back uh, today. Uh, and maybe there's going to have to be a shipment later. It was interesting, and this is, you know, I think one of the clever things when you stay at a fantastic hotel I said, this is a property, actually, which taken a lot of cues from Japan. Because I think anyone who knows when you stay at a great ryokan in Japan, you know, of course, you might spend whatever, six, $700 a night on the room. And you spend as much in a gift shop when you leave. You're buying all kinds of you know, tonics and potions and flannel pajamas you never thought you really needed. And this is a little bit the same what they've done here, which is great olive oils, fantastic wines. And you're almost sort of tripping over boxes because you see how many guests are shipping 
the you know, bottles back uh, all over the world. So it was actually quite interesting just sitting in the uh, in the reception, wine heading you know, back to, to San Francisco, to Los Angeles, to, to Berlin and beyond. There's that inherent joy about Portugal, isn't there? That it can weather, you always get the impression that it can weather any storm just by going back to doing what it does well. Yeah, absolutely. And this is, I think, you know, one of the stories we've been you know, really talking about the bounce back of Portugal you know, over the last you know, decade, decade and a half, that this is a country which still makes things. So you, you make your way from Lisbon down to the property. It's about two hours. You pass a Volkswagen uh, factory. Uh, and, of course, they're, they're, they've been churning out vehicles uh, for a long time. Uh, and then, of course, at the breakfast table, you flip everything over. And whether it's the cutlery, whether it's the plates, the linen, everything is made here. And this is, of course, something, again, which is, you know, certainly the last two years have brought this to light about supply chains, uh, about the fact, how do you engage communities? And, and there, there's, there is really something to be said for, for Made in Portugal still. And as we have, as you've been mentioning in your column this weekend, um, it's not just uh, the Brulé caravan, which has found this a great place to come. It is uh, the French and the Belgians have decided to set up, set up ship there as well. They have, but it, it's just incredible, the, this, this ongoing, you know, French invasion. Uh, and of course, uh, you talk to so many Portuguese, they, they, they talk about their historical run-ins with, with France. These aren't so much run-ins now, but it is this sustained uh, in, invasion um, of the French. And it's, it's remarkable to look at just the size of the community. And then, now not just the French, as I was saying, you know, you've got Belgians living here. You really get a sense that, that Lisbon is it's still transforming. I think everyone sort of thought, had we reached sort of this pinnacle point in terms of property prices, investment in it, but it's, it continues uh, a pace, which is interesting to watch. But also, I think if we look across the Atlantic as well, um, I mean, Brazilians, I mean, buying up everywhere. And again, it's not just necessarily a, a flight to say for sure it's financially. A lot of people said, you know, the motivation for a lot of people to leave Sao Paulo, Belo Horizonte, uh, to leave Rio is also purely for security reasons now. Uh, and that's why people are, are, are looking to, of course, yeah, invest, but also to 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 bring their kids over to go to school as well. So, what areas are we seeing growing? That you know, we have the Brazilians coming over to set up home, uh, possibly for more, more being pushed out of their their home to to the pull of of Portugal. But then, when you have the likes of the French and the Belgians coming in, I mean, this isn't just a you know a, a beautiful weekend in Lisbon that they're coming from coming for. Are they being drawn to uh, a different life, a different industry, a different a different quality of existence? I think that that's part of it. Uh, also, though, you know, I did hear from, uh, I was talking to some uh, French people yesterday evening as well, and they said that they don't feel that Paris is, is the same Paris, and they said that they feel that just whether or not you agree with Madame Hidalgo's uh, you know, transport uh, policies, etc., but there is also a feeling of, of personal security, too, um, in, in Paris. And so I think people want to be able to send their kids to school, and as I was saying in my column, and the, the Lycée Francais is, is expanding um, at a real rate uh, here as well. So I think this is, you know, again, I think this is part of, yeah, there's, there's very, uh, as you know, there, there are very economic relief measures that are here, um, but, but maybe I think also a sense that uh, things are not maybe as, as heavy from a crime and security point of view. So what's uh, in store for this week? Um, there's, a, there's a small gathering, isn't there, later on this week? Well, it's actually it's quite there's a large a small, gathering. There small is a, gathering. There is a small gathering indeed. We are one week, uh, well, we're, I mean, this time next week we'll be speaking. It'll be a little bit the afterglow, Emma. Uh, the, our Quality of Life Conference in Athens, 
uh, will be, uh, will be will have wrapped uh, this time next week. So there is sort of a daily deployment of um, Monocle editors, sound engineers, producers, uh, and and commercial colleagues who are all, of course, heading to Athens. Uh, I think the the first wave starts on Tuesday. Uh, everyone being in position by by Thursday morning, uh, and and things get underway Thursday evening. Key conference, uh, of course, next Friday, and we'll be bringing reports, uh, drop-ins, uh, really throughout the day, and, and certainly in, in the lead-up on Thursday as well. Tyler, we'll have you back at the end of the programme, and no doubt we'll talk about what's happening in Athens a little bit later on. Thank you, our Editorial Director, Tyler Roulet, enjoying a little bit of summer sun late summer sun in Portugal. It's time now to introduce my uh, panellists in the studio here in London. Caroline Frost, writer, journalist and broadcaster and the political commentator of Monocle 24, regular voice Vincent McAvinney. Good morning to you both. Good morning. Good morning. And from Zurich, uh, holding the fort in Dufourstrasse 90, all on his own, but don't worry, we're bringing him in. Florian Egli, senior associate at the Swiss foreign policy think tank Foraus. Good morning, Florian. Are you keeping, keeping the seats warm? Good morning. Yes, we're trying to keep everything warm here. I mean, it's it looks like autumn has begun before the James Bond premiere, which kind of uh, confuses me because I always thought that was the beginning of autumn. But today is a bit of a, of a grey and grim day in Zurich. I, I have never set my clocks um, according James to a, a James from... So many times I wouldn't set any clocks by it. Have you, um, have you ever done this? I, I didn't realise that James Bond was a season changer. Um, Lon- no. London guests looking at me completely no, blankly, Florian. No, I think no, it, it might be just be you. Zurich's thing, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we just look at calendars. Um, Florian, what have you spotted in the papers this morning on in your grey and, uh, and grey and drizzly day in, in Zurich? I'm so sorry about that. So let's maybe let's maybe start with a story that that um, you've teased on as well um, in the very beginning of the show. So the the French um, the French diplomatic corps that is that is going going wild. So you know drawing back ambassadors um, from um, from allied countries. And now um, there is also a diplomatic fallout between Paris and Bern. So um, the. Um, the French have called off a meeting between um, Emmanuel Macron and Guy Parmelin, so the highest level meeting between the French and the Swiss in November. It was planned. It has been cancelled now and everybody in Bern says they've been utterly surprised. They didn't know. Um, the French ambassador just um, came to the administration's office and basically delivered the message. And um, also the French have said that they will not allow any high level meetings until mm, summer next year. So for a full nine months, which is very unusual. Um, and it's actually quite drastic for Switzerland because we are in a difficult situation with the European Union. We have stalled and um, kind of um, you know ended the negotiations about the framework agreement. There is a lot of um, political trust that has been lost. And the French have offered before actually um, the Swiss have decided not to buy their fighter jets, have offered to you know act um, in the European Union as kind of a, um, I would say, an aid or like a, um, a guardian of Swiss interests. And that has turned completely upside down now and has really deteriorated. And I think, you know, yeah, Switzerland is facing the grim reality that choices such as which fighter jets to buy are not purely um, on a technical level or cannot decide it purely on a technical level, which is what the Swiss government always says, but they have political repercussions which are now being felt. So... We'll so see how that goes. We'll, yeah, we will. Um, we'll move on to the uh, the the what was it the the, the Orcus Ruckus, which people are talking about in a, in a moment, um, because the the French really have gone 
very, very, they've got very noisy about their objections to the, to the deal. But Florian, just explain a little bit about the Switzerland problem a little bit, a little bit further. You said it's about fighter jets, but, but we are not, we are not normally in the, in the business of withdrawing ambassadors. This is something that is only done when things really, when the wheels really do come off. Yeah, indeed. I mean, and, and some part of it might also be that, that Emmanuel Macron, of course, there is an election coming up next year, so that might be a bit of positioning too there. Um, but the Swiss is really, so if you go back a bit, so we've been negotiating um, for about seven years a framework agreement with the European Union, and um, the negotiations actually were finished, and the the council, the Swiss uh, Federal Council, had to then, you know, bring this bill to Parliament or eventually to a popular vote, and that never happened. So they got cold feet and and kind of basically ended the whole thing themselves and just buried it and said, okay, there is no way we're going to find um, a majority in the Swiss parliament or the population, so we'd rather bury it. And that, um, you know, destroyed a lot of a lot of trust um, from European partners, evidently, because they thought the negotiations were going on in good faith for all that time. And then all of a sudden, you know, it's kind of they didn't even try. That's kind of the impression that that that, that comes comes through. And then kind of at the same time, in parallel, the Swiss evaluated um, the purchase of fighter jets because last time they decided on buying a fighter jet, which was back then um, the Swedish model, it failed in the popular vote. So the whole process recommenced again. And now they settled on the American model, so the F-35 and um, not for the French model, the Rafael. And so again, here, similar story, the French felt that, you know, through all that process, they were being reassured. Yes, you know, we're... Um, you know, you're heading the race, and and if we find a political agreement on how you help us in the negotiations with the European Union, um, we will, you know, I mean, this is kind of a, a give and take, so we'll we'll find an agreement there. And then all of a sudden, the decision for the French fight uh, for the for the American fighter jet. So it's kind of a a system of surprises from the Swiss um, diplomatic corps or from the Swiss administration that really, um, I think, destroys trust. And um, so the French reaction might seem a bit a bit harsh now, but it has to be seen, of course, in the context of the the debate with the Americans. But still, I think there is a problem with, with, the, with how the Swiss administration and the Federal Council acts. It seems to be really lacking a strategy and really just not considering the larger political um, implications that these decisions have. This has been a week, hasn't it, Vincent, when just hearing what Florin's talking about there, where the French have not only had their nose, noses put out of joint, they have reacted in the most strong way you could imagine. I mean, just listening to what the French Foreign Minister Jean-Yves Le Drian has been talking about, and he's been talking, discussing things as a, as a betrayal, as uh, they've accused the US of lying in, in escalating the crisis. I mean, this just hasn't been something that has been done behind closed doors, has it? I mean, it's the level of drama you normally see on RuPaul's Drag Race. It is like absolutely <laughs> top-notch theatrics coming out by France. You know, it is a 56 a uh, billion euro contract to build these subs. It created a lot of employment uh, in northwest France and around the country as well. It is a humiliation for them. Uh, and it's the fact that they've been outplayed. You know, this deal was apparently signed off effectively at the G7 in Cornwall. Uh, you know, France and the other European nations made a little spectacle of having their own breakaway group sitting down on the beach talking behind the uh, UK's back whilst there. Lo and behold, Boris Johnson, who had invited the Australian Prime Minister as a guest, as sometimes happens at these conferences, was in a room with Joe Biden, apparently negotiating this huge deal. So it is some 
sneaky behavior, but it is, I think, we, we need to separate it out to two things. So first of all is the reason, I think, why the US has done this and then, you know, why the French have been burned by this. So yeah, the French have massively reacted to this. You know, on Friday, they were meant to be having uh, a big gala reception in Washington, D.C. to mark the 240th anniversary of the Battle of Chesapeake, which commemorates the French naval victory over the British fleet in the American Revolution. Talk about symbolism, cancelling that uh, big diplomatic event. You know, that would have been quite uh, the cancellation. Imagine how much money they would have spent on that. And then the wording that's coming out in the in the last 48 hours as well. You know, the Australian, their ambassador in Australia saying, we thought we were mates and looking after each other's backs. Unfortunately, our back wasn't covered as he uh, heads to depart. Uh, and then not withdrawing their ambassador to Britain, which is great because they said well we know the british are opportunists so there's no point withdrawing so it's just quite remarkable it's a brilliant snub to the british isn't it it's a very stylish snub by the french and it, yesterday i think someone had i think there was a suggestion that that the, the french had described the united kingdom as the fifth wheel which effectively belittles them and put puts the british as you know opportunists who who not actually are relevant to this story i mean that's going to be the phrase that becomes remembered from all of this, of course. And the great challenge now is how Boris Johnson and his government keep his European neighbours happy while clearly setting out his stall to, in a post-Brexit world, finding new important friends. He's clearly decided that it's more important to create this Anglophone agreement than it is to even pretend to koto to what the EU, particularly France and Germany, care about anymore. I think it's, I'm surprised it's taken this long, perhaps lockdown and COVID has delayed some of this post-Brexit machining, sort of moving around and, and renegotiating our position on the world stage. We were warned, we were, well, we were told it was this was the opportunity, the kind of good stuff that we would be promised, the dream-lit uplands. But obviously it comes with certain, um, as we've said, people's noses put very firmly out of joint and whether the huge cost of that will prove to be politically and economically, we'll have to wait and see. Florian, let's pick up on this this point that Caroline makes. It is the issue of trying to keep the neighbours happy. I mean, when you're when you're sitting at Foraus discussing foreign policy, how surprised are you that keeping the neighbours happy doesn't seem to be that important anymore? Yeah, it is very surprising. So what the Swiss are very good at is keeping the immediate neighbors happy. Now, that's even smaller than countries, that's regions. So we're very good at keeping the regions ar around Switzerland happy, so particularly in Germany, Bavaria, um, but also um, everything around Stuttgart. So, But also, you know, if you, go, if you go south towards Italy, northern Italy, so actually the biggest or the most vocal um, supporters of Swiss positions in the European Union, in European discussions, have always been these lender or these these regions um, and not the, the capitals because the capitals typically see Switzerland, you know, as an important player, but yes, you know, not that important and and some something also, you know, that that is always um, making a lot of noise and perhaps a bit too much noise for the actual importance of the country. So we are really good at this and that's really basically economic, right? The economic ties are extremely strong to these regions. But I think there is really a problem because strategically the the, the Swiss diplomatic corps and the Swiss foreign ministry would have a lot of opportunities in, you know, setting, in, in giving Europe and European capitals, um, especially those surrounding Switzerland, more priority and assuring that they really, you know, stand up for Swiss interests as well in these negotiations and within the European Union. So I think there it's really, it's really a question of strategy. And we haven't seen 
a clear strategy. So the Swiss foreign minister, when he assumed his post um, a couple of years back, he really said that Europe is going to be one of the priorities. But we haven't really seen that. Also, if you look at you know where they travel and where they where high level meetings happen, we haven't really seen this this real Europe focus. And partly we haven't seen that because in the population there is just so much skepticism about the European Union and about Europe um, that it's hard for them. They feel to justify this focus, although you know from a diplomatic or a strategic standpoint, it would make absolute sense. Um, Vincent, just picking up on what Florian talks about, I mean, how the how in Switzerland it is the big cities, the capitals, which are sceptical of, of international closer ties, whereas the local regions realise which side their bread is buttered on. Basically, it has to be trade. That's rather different, isn't it, from many other countries, the United Kingdom not at least, where we have London, which is incredibly outward looking. It is based now an entire society and economy based on immigration and international relations and yet the big places that really wanted to push away from closer union and the united kingdom with with, let's say the european union that's all out in the regions they're like we'll go it alone we'll be absolutely fine yeah i mean it is you know britain is an island mentality it's a you know nation that hasn't been invaded for about a thousand years and it very much was you know as well a lot of the places that voted hardest for brexit when you look around the kind of geography are what are ones that actually received an incredible amount of eu funding wales received some of the highest funding per capita and it voted to leave uh, as a nation and you look at places that are kind of coastal areas which also got a lot of resources but then also were facing the most damage from changes to the shipping rules changes to uh, fishing rules as well uh, they were the places like your Grimsby's, like, you know, your Claxons on Sea, all of those kind of down in Kent as well. Those were the places that voted to leave, despite them being having this history of maritime, of trade, of international kind of links. It, it was those people that felt left behind by the people in London. And that island mentality. I love the fact that we've not been invaded for a thousand years. And when we were invaded, we were invaded by the French. We haven't quite forgotten, have we? Clearly not. It's all about those <laughs> tennis balls, isn't it? So it's. Well, I just want to add to uh, what Vincent said, which was that as well, immigration was often cited as the biggest cause for the big Brexit unsurprise victory. And of course, those towns that you mentioned are the least affected by immigration in this country. And it's the cities that have enjoyed the benefits uh, of immigration and are quite happy with it. Fear of the unknown. Always. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, what is it that the, where does this now leave the French, uh, Florian? Who, I mean, being angry in public, it, it's it's good for you internally, but externally, it doesn't necessarily look very good. I mean, the only thing you would contrast it with is that as the as the AUKUS row was was brewing over the week, um, no, the French were being incredibly public and uh, angry, and the Dutch Prime Minister Mark Rutte was in. Uh, London, having quiet conciliatory talks with with Boris Johnson, just knowing full well that that we all have to get on with each other in the long term here and and, and having what is effectively a a big angry outburst doesn't necessarily keep things, you know, on, on an even keel in the long term. Yes, I mean, fully agree. And I, I don't think it makes the French look that great. I mean, it maybe deflects a bit from the humiliation in that sense, but it doesn't seem like a very well thought through reaction. And also, I mean, there's two things maybe to keep in mind here. So one is, to what extent is that also a deflection from, you know, domestic issues in France um, that, that Emmanuel Macron maybe doesn't want to talk about so much. So there has been huge problems with the pass sanitaire, so with the, with the COVID certificate 
certificate, there is actually quite a lot of backlash in the in the French population. A lot of um, demonstrations in big cities have happened throughout, you know, the spring and summer. When I was in France, for example, I think six weeks ago in Marseille, also there every weekend, very big, very large protests. So I think um, there there is part maybe also a bit of a deflection. But then the positive is, you know, um, there is bigger debates to be had, I think, amongst members of the European Union, you know, how their future um, strategic military independence is going to look like. And we've um, we've read um, today on the front, front page of the Frankfurter Allgemeine Zeitung that Annegret Kramp-Karrenbauer, the um, former head of the um, um, of the CDU, so of the of the Conservative Party in in uh, Germany, current uh, Minister of Defense, is now quite vocally saying that if she um, gets a seat in the new government after the election, she will push for you know a more unified um, European approach to defense, uh, uh, what she calls in German an Eingreifung. Truppe, so a kind of a rapid, a rapid response um, unit that is across many member member states. So I think if these discussions, you know, gain a bit of speed, that would be good. Um, if it's only, you know, the big, the big blast and kind of deflecting from from other issues, then of course um, that's very short term and there's nothing to be gained in the in the long term. It's a difficult idea for the Germans to actually sort of embrace that kind of thing. It would require a change in constitution. Am I right in thinking that, Florian? I mean, it depends. I think then it's really down to the nitty-gritty things. I mean, of course, it re- we would require a change in the constitution if it were um, a, a military that is not only for defense purposes, but, you know, changing the German constitution, that won't happen in the near future. That is extremely difficult, and, and, and there there is nowhere close a majority for that. So I think, you know, there would be ways to probably legally, you know, move around that and, and, and um, yeah, in a in a European context, um, I'm not sure how that's that could happen or is going to happen, um, but I'm pretty sure it's not going to be a change of the constitution. Vinny, there's a scathing assessment of what's happened in the last week in the Sunday Times, isn't there? Yeah, but I think to kind of step away a little bit from you know the French overreaction calling Britain a vassal state, we have to look at, at what the reasons behind these decisions were as well, and also the links. You know, France, yes, they got this contract to build these subs, but the links between. Uh, Australia, the United States and the UK are cemented through things like World War II, the Five Eyes Agreement, which also includes Canada and New Zealand, which is an intelligence sharing agreement. And also one of the letters of last resort, which is signed by the Prime Minister, the options for if the British government falls when they come into office, the first thing that they're done to shock them into the job by the civil service is they're given four different letters and there are four copies of each. And the letters are instructions to our nuclear attack submarines as to what to do if the British government falls. Option one, stay at sea and do nothing. Option two, retaliate at your own you know, decision. Uh, option three, report to the US president. And option four is report to the Australian prime minister. So there already was this kind of mechanism in place, this kind of, you know, these close military ties. And the British prime minister has to decide which one they want. The other letters are destroyed. And those four letters are sent to the submarines, locked away. Uh, and the submarine captain is the only person who ever sees what that instruction is. And British uh, prime ministers can change their decision if at re-election points as well so if you know a rogue prime a rogue president comes in in one nation they can swap it to you know the australians if they want and prime ministers we never said what they've done but they have tony blair i think admitted that he had changed his mind so there is this wider partnership between the nations which seems you know makes more sense and it is all about china that is what this is about this is a step change and i think a kind of 
recognition that the US is now so Asia-Pacific focused. They think that the European Union isn't keeping up with defence spending. You know, it's a criticism Trump made loudly, but it's something that Biden probably believes as well, that they've not got their policies in place. They've been too soft on China. And this is a massive change in the UK's position. We've been very cosy with Chinese investment in the last decade. George Osborne accused by his backbenchers of being too close to China, letting in companies like Huawei initially into infrastructure. Now that's being rolled back because of security concerns. The Conservative Party becoming a lot more hawkish on China. We've just sent our new aircraft carrier, HMS Elizabeth, down to the South China Sea, which is going to become the real kind of tension point in the next decade. Uh, But, you know, this marks a real decision that time is right to kind of step up to stop China's naval sea power. But there are big questions. One posed particularly by Theresa May in the last week is she's not clear what this decision means as a former prime minister that if China attacks Taiwan now, is that the US, the UK and Australia all bound to act together in in kind of naval defence that raises really big questions away from the French being quite upset about their contract? Fascinating stuff, isn't it? Um, The only thing I would add to that is, I suppose it comes down, as always, to personalities as well. So you have somebody like Scott Morrison, who is not completely cemented in certainty in his own backyard. This will have done him no harm at all to be seen as a world figure suddenly, suddenly being mentioned probably more times in international newspapers than he has in his entire role as PM. And of course, geographically, it's no bad thing to be where to be the only, well, big, Anglophone country in that position so that he becomes very helpful um, going forward and as you say that the, the great Chinese power has, has changed everything and how people relate to that is going to require coalition that we haven't seen before. And ultimately, these are the submarines that you need. You know, you don't need diesel electric, you need nuclear mm-hmm. in order to contain that threat. Mm-hmm. Vincent McAvenny, Caroline Frost here in London. Stay with us. We'll be back to you a little bit later in the programme. And Florian Egli keeps standing by, keeping things going in Dufourstrasse 90. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday with me, Emma Nelson. We'll be finding out what's making the pages of the Süddeutsche Zeitung this weekend in just a moment. Monocle's September issue includes a media special as we meet the anchors, survey the newsrooms and highlight the brands with ideas, integrity and sunny stories to tell. Let's flick through some of the highlights. If it's the Mediterranean you're dreaming of, we visit Italy in our design section to peek inside a modernist residence on the rugged coastline in Liguria. Order a copy of Monocle's September issue today or subscribe to get instant access to our digital editions. here in London, 10.31 in uh, Berlin and Munich, which is, uh, we're going to be heading to Germany now um, to continue looking at what's looking, making the headlines. But from the point of view of the Süddeutsche Zeitung paper this weekend, good morning, Bastian Brinkman, the paper's deputy economics editor. How is life where you are in Munich? Good morning. It's a very sunny, sunny Sunday morning here in Munich. Wonderful. Glad to hear it. So the the weekend edition of the Süddeutsche Zeitung, I imagine you're sort of crackling with anticipation about what's going to be happening this time next week. Exactly. It's only seven days away before the election day, although one of the big mysteries of this election, apart from who will win, is who many people are um, doing in-mail voting, because, of course, due to, to the pandemic, it's very easy to do 
voting by mail, but nobody knows exactly how many people already voted and how many votes are still out there. So how much is there still room to fight over potential votes? How much room is there going on at the moment? Because, I mean, for a little while now, it has been accepted that um, Olaf Scholz from the STP is is the front runner to cause absolute huge overhaul and, and seismic changes in the, in, the, in the German political climate, given the fact that Angela Merkel and the CDU have been the dominant influence and power for, you know, for the best part of nearly two decades now. Yeah, that's true. Although the Social Democratic Party, the centre-left party of Olaf Scholz, was also in power many times with Angela Merkel. Only one um, one part of her chancellery was with the uh, right-wing Liberal Party. Um, but the polls are very stable this Sunday, so there's not much movement. Olaf Scholz is still the stable front-runner. And on the other side, the Conservative Party is still hoping for some last week momentum in the final days and hoping to pick up some speed in this crucial final days. Um, tell us from the point of view what, it, what it's like being you know, absolutely in the thick of it, covering what is a huge, huge change in the German political climate as a journalist. So you have Bastian Brinkman you know, deputy economics editor of the Süddeutsche Zeitung, thinking this is a big old thrill. And then you have Bastian Brinkman, the German citizen, thinking, oh my goodness, this is huge. That's totally right. There's, there will be a big change, as you said. Chancellor Merkel is stepping down and there will be some new person in the chancellery steering the wheel of Germany um, So, and this is um, this is a big change. On the other hand, uh, when we started the election campaign in Germany, all three parties who put forward candidates for the chancellery, the Greens, the Social Democrats and the Conservatives, all of them are fairly centred and in the end not big upheaval is probably going to come, whoever wins. And on the other hand, it was an unexpected roller coaster ride covering the election because all three of them were frontrunners at a certain stage. When the Greens nominated uh, Annalena Baerbock as a frontrunner, she was in the lead in all the polls and people loved her. Then she declined. Same for the conservative leader, uh, Armin Laschet. After he was nominated, a huge surge in the polls. He was a frontrunner and then he declined. And now in the final weeks, we have a final frontrunner and all three of them were ahead in the polls once. And that makes it so exciting and unexpected. Is anybody actually looking forward to a big change in German politics? I think at the moment, yes, that's kind of the mood, because otherwise people would have voted for the conservative candidate, who is not Angela Merkel, who is a different person, of course, but it's still from her camp and seen as her like closest successor in terms of governing and policy. But people are now moving for the different option. Um, the Social Democrats, who are also in power in the coalition government, but they are seen as kind of a change, but not as a radical change as voting in the Green Party. So the German mood at the moment, I would describe as a little bit of change, but not a big one. Um, one big change that's going to happen is for one certain man called Joachim uh, Zauer, who if we didn't know who he was, you've certainly told the whole world who he is. You know, He's basically... Frau Merkel's husband, and he does the shopping in Berlin Mitte. He does the he does everything that to sort of keep his wife uh, ticking over properly, so that she can carry on and run the country. Um, I bet he's rather pleased that he's he's finally getting a little bit of a break. 
Nobody knows because he never talks to journalists apart from like one or two exceptions in 16 years. That's really, really rare that he talks to journalists. So nobody can know what goes on in his mind. But as he sheds away from the from the stage light, I think it's fair to assume that he will be very pleased that never again a journalist will come knock on his door and ask him what he thinks about German politics. Uh, and he can kind of of go back to his old life with just he's a scientist he's into quantum chemistry and i don't really know what he's doing and can't describe it but uh, chancellor merkel also is a physics scientist by training and they work together in the gdr in like the apolitical science environment and they were doing really hard science and he kept on doing it as a university professor and can now really focus on just doing that i think he's very happy but i don't know why have you decided to write an enormous article about him then this weekend, if this is a, you know, the, the scientific mystery behind Frau Merkel? Because maybe it tells a lot about how she also governs and also thinks about things. Um, she's doing her job um, and that's it. She doesn't make a big fuss about herself. And in that way, her husband also perfectly captures that sense of duty when you are in office. He rarely accompanies you for international travel um, and for the big summits, but when he does, it's always kind of like assumed also for a sense of responsibility. And um, when there are the big G20, G7 summits, he sometimes hosts the wife and husbands of the other world leaders who are coming in. And um, he feeds them scientific presentations from nanomaterial science and so on. Uh, and I don't know how the audience reacts to that in these talks, um, but I think it also shows a little bit how Angela Merkel maybe is approaching things very detailed, very scientific, very reasonable and rational and responsible. I mean, it's it's quite a thought, actually, you know, being a world leader or a spouse and realizing that you've got a whole evening of, of particle physics to enjoy with, with Herr Sauer. What a nice talk over dinner, exactly. <laughs> Bastian Brinkman, one last uh, thing that we wanted to ask you about, which is, heaven forbid, they're going to put a speed limit on the outer barn. And please tell me that's not so. Um, I think it's one of the big election points that could change after the election, when the Greens especially, and maybe also the Social Democrats can form a coalition. The Greens will really, it's one of the first things that they want to ch change after the election, when they get in power, when they go into a coalition. And then we will have a speed limit of probably 130 kilometers per hour. So not actually slow compared to like well, how fast you can go with a car. Um, and of course, that's for mainly for environmental reasons, because driving a car with 200 kilometers per hour, which is possible on many parts, but not all parts of the autobahn, it's not that good for the environment, even if people, some people really like to do it. Indeed, uh, even if people like to do it. So step in the electric Porsche, I'm assuming. But only at 130 kilometers per hour. So I don't really know how much fun is there left then. Bastian Brinkman, that's the, that's the end of society as I know it, if there's no, much, no more fun to be had on the Autobahn. Thank you so much for joining us on the line from Munich. Monocle on Sunday with me, Emma Nelson. Let's head to uh, Bangkok now to hear from our correspondent there, Gwen Robinson. Good afternoon. It's so. Uh, what time is it where you are, Gwen? We're in. We're sort of like coming. We're post lunch now on a Sunday. 
Oh, Saudi car, Emma. It's uh three. It's about three forty p.m. in in Bangkok, and we're in the middle of a huge thunderstorm. Okay, well, we'll try and weather it. <laughs> um, what news from where you are? What news from where you are? Well, there's a lot. Where do I begin? Um, you know, we've got this huge debate going on in in Bangkok. I mean, it's it's yet another manifestation of the of the Thai bewilderment and and confusion about how to get out of this whole COVID restrictions they've imposed and reopened tourism. And it is getting very serious. It's been so long now. And uh, as we know, a lot of hotels have been under huge pressure and businesses are collapsing. So the latest uh, proposal was to declare that Bangkok itself has reopened to uh, international visitors and that would mean that you can fly into Bangkok without quarantine if you're fully vaccinated and meet requirements and that was all supposed to happen on October the 1st and all the hotels were getting ready with new packages to attract tourists all that but uh, that's now been put off it was announced that it it had been postponed till October the 15th but we've just heard that in fact that is not the case but it seems like there's a lot of confusion surprisingly between the Tourism Authority and the Bangkok uh, Administration, Metropolitan Authority. So we're, we're actually not sure. And I've just spoken to a few hoteliers who are pulling their hair out, if any of them have any hair left. And uh, they're still not sure what the situation is. And, and meanwhile, the, the Phuket Sandbox Scheme, which is to allow international travellers to just fly straight into Phuket and roam the island free... Uh, and easy and, and not have to quarantine um, has worked brilliantly and I think is starting to become something like a model that possibly other parts of Asia could consider. So it's sort of weird disconnect that you've got this great success with Sandbox and this sort of absolute confusion in, in Bangkok about whether to open or not. They're very worried about opening Bangkok. It is a metropolis of 9 million people. So I think it's a lot riskier than to open a, a, a contained island, uh, which has a much smaller population. From the point of view of the people that you've spoken to who've used the, the, the sandbox scheme, why is it so good? Why is it working? Well, I think because it's one of the few places uh, in, as you know, Asia is, uh, has been hit very badly in the second and third waves of COVID. So it's actually one of the few places that international travellers can fly into a tropical resort island and and roam freely i mean you can go to restaurants at one point they're even serving alcohol i i think ostensibly they're not supposed to now but many places are um you know you can come and go and go around the island which is big enough to to keep you happy for 14 days and after you complete that you can then move to other parts of thailand so i think that's quite ingenious and i i heard that even parts of Japan, maybe the southern island of Kyushu, are considering this kind of model. Tell us a little bit about the political climate in Thailand at the moment. I mean, it is, it is, not, it is still very unhappy, isn't it? Well, indeed, that's the other... I mean, overall in Thailand, as usual, I suppose, you've got a complete stir-fry of, um, of, things, of ingredients. And one of those, behind all this sort of pushed by business and tourism to get things going and convince everyone that Thailand is up and running and capable, you've got these uh, escalating protests which have, which have morphed, really. You've got um, every day now there are some 
very violent but smaller protests going on in sort of the poorer urban areas of Bangkok. And they're, they're quite savage. We've had, um, you know, police sort of shooting rubber bullets at protesters and protesters fighting back and torching police bikes. This sort of thing is going on, well, I'd say most days. And, uh, and on the other hand, you've got sort of very big, more establishment rallies uh, gathering, fairly peaceful, but they're getting larger. Some of them have attracted maybe 3,000, nothing like the numbers last year. But all the focus and the momentum is still there for blaming the government for a lot of Thailand's ills. And I think it's being fueled even further by this perception that the vaccine rollout has been slow and has left a lot of people behind. So these protests are kind of marring the whole situation, but they're not really hitting the headlines that much because they're not like these fast protests last year where we were seeing 60,000 people in public areas. Um, one subject that's very much sort of in, the, in your on your radar, and, and you do cover for us regularly, is Myanmar. Um, we have now the parallel government declaring war against the junta, and the levels of violence are increasing um, on both sides. What are you, what are you hearing from where you are? Well, indeed, uh, in fact, you've had some good commentary on that in in recent days. I think caught the junta, the state administration council, slightly unaware that that the NUG, the National Unity Government, which is basically uh, an umbrella in, in, led really by the National League for Democracy, Aung San Suu Kyi's ousted administration, uh, would go this far. But uh, they have and they've declared war and there's been escalating violence since that. It's only been about 10 days and uh, it's clear that it's had an effect. There's a lot more urban-style terrorism, bombings, assassinations, shootings, and there's this uh, growing phenomenon of people's defence forces, which are basically really civilian militias that uh, are both rural and urban and uh, really organising themselves. Some are more, well, some are a little more than what uh, one military analyst called a few friends, a Facebook account and a kitchen knife, but others are really quite serious and uh, have arms. So um, it's really breaking down to what I think is really the, the perception of a growing civil war and fragmentation. You've also got the ethnic areas of Myanmar, which account for nearly 50% of the land area, uh, with ethnic groups that want, uh, want to take on the junta or at least the military forces. So they're also fighting. And uh, it's really uh, a very... Um, very dark outlook for Myanmar. And meanwhile, I think the key thing this week is the opening of the UN General Assembly in New York, where both sides, the unfortunately named SAC, Junta, and the NUG, parallel government, are both vying to place their ambassadors into uh, the UN. As um, as some people might have seen, the most electrifying moment are uh, in diplomacy, I think this year has been when the Myanmar's incumbent ambassador at the UN General Assembly shortly after the coup, February 1st, late, late February, uh, denounced the junta before the General Assembly and flashed a three-fingered salute. And uh, the junta immediately tried to dismiss him. But probably because a lot of people are on his side, including, I would say, the UN itself, the US, a lot of big players, Western countries... Um, he's been able to stay in place 
and he even cast a vote in a in a very important vote for an arms embargo against Myanmar. Uh, Myanmar's listed as voting in favour of the arms embargo, which is because that ambassador is in place. Gwen so Robinson. It yeah. Gwen, Gwen, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle 24. You're with Monocle on Sunday. Let's go back to uh, just talking about the thing that, st- that sort of stuck in my mind from the last 15 minutes was, was listening to Bastian and his coverage of the Süddeutsche Zeitung. Um, Vincent, you I know you burst into laughter when we were talking about the issue I'm of just having... just imagining Melania Trump listening to a lecture on particle physics on the side of a G20. I mean, it would just be fantastic to have seen that from the German <laughs> Chancellor's husband. That would have been quite something. Absolutely. Caroline, that was an amazing idea, wasn't it? I mean, I'm assuming that he can talk, you know, with engagement and, and, and enlighten us all. And actually, it's a quite nice idea, actually, that you get some sort of um, a little bit of cultural enrich- enrichment as opposed to being uh, a little bit of... Uh, Dolly birding if you're someone's partner. Oh, for sure. I would imagine that it's a complete antidote for Angela Merkel to go home and just switch off from the trials and tribulations of the German parliament and, and hear something so completely different. And we know that she is a scholar herself, and I'm sure it's in completely different. I, yeah, what I enjoy is the fact that the world's leaders plus ones are so binary. You either get the sort of Lady Macbeth archetypes, the ones who are seen to dabble far too deeply into manners of matters of unelected state and then you get the the uh, sort of Dennis Thatchers the ones who are quite happy just to to go off for their golf pop in when required and pour their often female leader wife a good sherry when required and I think it's, it is quite interesting which camp each respective leader falls into when it comes to this. Florian in, in uh, Du Vorstrasse 90 um, the sort of the diplomatic soft power credentials of having a part you know a, a highly qualified scientist on the sidelines of a G7. Um, what kind of soft power effect does that have? I'm not sure what kind of soft power effect. Maybe it gives you like the the kind of enigma of a scientist that always um, speaks, you know, rationally. Um, but, you know, I mean, it is interesting to see how how, how the partners of, of these world leaders behave. And and I think the, the one that comes to my mind, you know, Michelle Obama, who has, has been extremely vocal and extremely active and is the complete antidote in that sense um, to Angela Merkel's partner. Um, so I think, yeah, there are different ways to play this. Um, but I also, I, I, I find it extremely amusing to imagine um, such an event where, you know, particle physics or chemistry is discussed um, and, and, and instead of, you know, having a, a cup of tea or a drink. Um, so I think maybe, maybe that, you know, releases also a very simple, pathetic um, 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 feeling, I think, towards towards Germany in that sense, or towards the the Merkel um, um, the Merkel camp. I could imagine that because it's just so completely different. Uh, let's bring back in our editorial director, Tyler Brule, uh, somewhere warm and sunny in Portugal. Welcome back, Tyler. Hello, Emma. The discussions that you just uh, dived into involved the fact that um, Joachim Sauer is being, uh, the Frau Merkel's husband, is being written about in this weekend's Süddeutsche Zeitung. And it appears that in the sidelines of, of great um, international meetings of world leaders, uh, Herr Sauer, who must be Professor Sauer, I would imagine, uh, delivers lectures to spouses on, intellect, on, uh, on particle physics and, and highly technical areas of, of, of science. I'm assuming that that's what's going to be happening at the Monocle Quality of Life conference in Athens this week. Yeah, absolutely. I'm not sure how big the spouses or partners program is going to be. It, it is a component, but it's it's interesting to sort of watch over the years. I'm always sort of surprised that that you have people who want to come to a conference and then they ask if there's a spouses program. And you think, well, 
wouldn't they want to be part of the mix and part of this conversation anyway? Uh, and, and now I think we have seen it. It, it, it normally is a package deal. We, we, we tend not to do uh, having something on the side for everybody else. Uh, it, it tends to be a bit of a, well, hopefully, a very integrated uh, event. And, and as you said, yes, uh, head, heading off to, to Athens, and it should be it should be a really um, interesting week. I mean, just you know, a variety of interesting voices. You know, of course, uh, looking at the newspapers, Emma Tucker is coming over, the editor in chief of the Sunday Times. Uh, we have you know, Thomas Chatterton Williams, who's just a really interesting voice, a different type of voice on diversity, and he's going to be talking alongside the Archbishop of the Greek Orthodox Church uh, for the United States about forgiveness. And the topic of just how do we how do we move on today at, a, at in an era of canceling, etc. You know, really trying to say there needs to be a point of also moving on. We can't be in this world of condemnation. Uh, and 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 of course, being in Athens, we want this, of course, to be about discussion and debate as well. Caroline, maybe maybe I can bring you in here because you picked pick something up in the Sunday Times about a far from forgiving uh, cl- group of clergymen and women who've decided to block the M25 here in London uh, in in, uh, in support of Extinction Rebellion. Not, not so friendly. No, fascinating challenge for the church. So yes, a lot of Brits, particularly down in the southeast of England, were ruffled this week with all sorts of disruptions across various motorways. Um, and it turns out, it transpires the Telegraph talks about two Anglican priests who were very much part of that rebellion. And in fact, uh, they have previous form when it comes to disruption. One of them has got a contempt of court offence because uh, she went and glued herself to court furniture during Extinction Rebellion protests while pictured in her clerical collar, no less. And uh, similarly, her colleague has previously been photographed um, outside the offices of News UK arguing, sewing his lips together. Horrific. I interviewed him recently. Oh, really? Yeah, the Extinction Rebellion. Did you say much? He had, uh, you know, (laughs) Was it one-way conversation? (laughs) He didn't. uh, He wasn't so still, but he had glued himself to the big pink table that they tried to Mm -hmm. put in place on the first day. Uh, And he, yeah, and he is someone. You know, it was a really interesting conversation with him. He is someone that is, you know, he 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 has grandchildren. He says he's absolutely terrified Mm. uh, for them. uh, That he thinks that, you know, aside from the fact that, you know, a lot of people of religious belief, you know, you do think that the that the earth was created by God, and that, you know, you're you're trashing it. And a big, a lot of the Bible revolves around elements of protecting nature looking after mm-hmm. the world you know you know making sure that that you respect God's work and so it's unsurprising I think that a lot of the clergy are kind of getting involved in this and really it is a cause for them to take up where you know few people can argue with the, with the idea you know people don't like often clergy getting into politics but when it comes to the planet there is no alternative. There's no planet they B. Don't have an so, alter- yeah. yeah. But they, it's interesting that they've said, that in fact, the church, although they condemn the actions and they think it's actually very disruptive and will not uh, further their cause, being very pragmatic, but they're also saying that no further action will be taken because they are clearly acting in yeah. good conscience. And one of their other points as well, just quickly, I know you've got to go to Tyler, but um, the church's pension fund is invested in fossil fuels. And a lot of the uh, clergy Ooh. that are up against this want the pension fund change because they think it's a big way of kind mm. of you know that is a big movement there are you know there are companies as well that are moving away from that giving people the option of that so that is a big one too tyler no revolting clergy no revolting clerics i'm assuming in athens this week just sunshine good food and optimism well we we hope if, if the greek <laughs> orthodox uh, church can can behave then fine i can see the same from portugal as well i think um this being sunday morning um in a rather catholic country everyone is uh 
going about their, their village business uh, with masks as they should be. Um, Tyler, let's look ahead to um, an, another uh, minor project that you, you've been slightly involved in, which is the, the, the relaunch and the, uh, and the sort of like the reshaping of Monocle magazine. Absolutely. So this will be uh, hitting newsstands and should be going through some letter boxes, maybe in the heart of Europe uh, already. But uh, yes, uh, October marks really almost sort of the runway to launch uh, of the magazine uh, 15 years ago. So this was really the time when we were signing contracts. We were bringing the first editors on board. Uh, I think we were still having a tussle with Andrew Tuck at that point. but uh, we got him across the line uh, at this time 15 years ago. And so rather than marking 15 years of the magazine by just sort of coming out with a, a March issue, um, which has a big 1-5 on it, I thought it was more interesting to, to really actually mark that now. And so you will see a slightly redesigned cover. The logo doesn't change. But I would say there is a pace change inside the magazine. And I was just mentioning debate earlier. We have a you know, great discussion hosted by our Andrew Muller about it has Australia's policy in terms of really bunkering down, shutting borders. Has this been you know, right? And we've got you. Know, it, it's argued by Bob Carr um, and and a series of other uh, Australians, Stan Grant, the broadcaster, etc. So you know, this is something that we introduce: longer reads, bigger Q and As. Um, I'd say maybe a magazine which has a little bit more time to breathe, but of course also uh, all of the regular sections that people expect from global affairs, all the way, of course, through to good urbanism and design and, and everything else in between. Tyler, thank you so much indeed for joining us on the line from Portugal. No doubt we will be hearing from you hopefully this time next week as uh, you're doing the final wash-up from the uh, Monocle Quality of Life Conference in Athens. If you haven't got your tickets, go to the Monocle website and sign up now. It will be well worth the trip, I can guarantee it. And a big thanks also to my other guests today, Vincent McAvinney, Florian Egley, Caroline Frost, Gwen Robinson and Bastian Brinkman. The programme was produced by Marcus Hippie, our studio manager in Zurich was Desiree Bandley and Steph Chungu was looking after the sound here in London. For now from me, Emma Nelson Monocle on Sunday returns next week have a good rest of the weekend. Goodbye thank you for listening